0: Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate.
1: And I'm Andrea.
0: And this uh, is a podcast where we read things and we talk about them together. She is my mom and a librarian. Uh, she's currently for exactly two days between libraries.
1: That's right. Uh,
0: so I guess you're technically, you're not a librarian right now.
1: I'm a paladin.
0: You're a Paladin.
1: <laughs> I'm a librarian without a library. A Ronin. I'm a Ronin.
0: A Paladin's like a holy <laughs> warrior, you know? Or one of the knights that served Charlemagne. I think that's technically where that term comes from. Okay. Um yeah, no, you're a Ronin. Uh I'm Nate. I already said that. So we read Sandman Overture. So this is an extension of our series on the Sandman that we wrapped up a few months ago. Uh, we're coming back and doing the last sort of, like, big single story in Neil Gaiman's Sandman oeuvre. There's, like, a two or three collections of short stories left. I think there's, like, Dream Hunters. There's, like, a novel. But this is the last, like, comic that's on the level of something like A Game of You or The Doll's House.
1: I think, I mean, technically this is listed as a prequel. So I think this fits... Thematically, into the story arch of the same Man series. So this, the other things are sort of one-offs and short stories, and this is sort of in the canon and follows the story arch of the original long series.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, the, uh, the name, Overture, implies you're supposed to experience this before the rest of the series. I have a kind of a hot take on that, They'll do a little bit of a machete cut. I think if I think you can read all ten volumes of Sandman and not read Overture and not lose anything. I think, I think this is good, but I don't think... There, it. I think it maybe adds to the experience, but not having it doesn't take away from it.
1: Yeah, I. what I was going to say is I think that if you read the series, you should read Overture at the end.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because it
1: doesn't help you to read it in the beginning.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. My, my machete cut suggestion is to read this after The Kindly Ones but before The Wake if you're going to read it in a run of reading the whole series.
1: I think it, there's a, there's so many sort of nods to the entire series that are almost like Easter eggs for fans that if you read it before you finish the series, some of it is lost on you. I feel like the parts where Daniel makes this sort of but you're going to have any idea what yeah. that is. So I feel like you should, even though it's a prequel and it's called Overture, it actually should come at the end, which is where it is. So this was published in the original run of it. The monthly or bi-monthly run was done in 2013. Mm-hmm. And then in 2015, it was published in this deluxe edition which is what we read, the 25th anniversary deluxe edition. Yeah,
0: that has a bunch of back matter about the making of the comic that I didn't read because I'm lazy, but But I'm sure it's very interesting.
1: I think, but what it has that makes it enriching, it has the multiple covers, Yeah, which I think are sort of really compelling and worth reading the deluxe just to see these alternative covers.
0: Yeah, so obviously Neil Gaiman, he writes the whole thing, Uh, All the art is by J.H. Williams III, and then all of the colors are by Dave Stewart. And then every issue has a cover by J.H. Williams, which I think was like the main cover. And then a variant that's done by Dave McKean, who did all of the covers for the original Sandman run.
1: Yeah, so I think it's like a nice component to sort of tie everything graphically together.
0: Yeah. I mean, it definitely... I think I prefer the McKean covers, because they just look more like a Sandman thing.
1: I think so, too. So this is six issues, and it's theoretically telling the story of what Dream was doing before he was captured by Burgess.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a six-issue... It's Neil Gaiman's six-issue panic attack about climate change.
1: Really? I thought it was about getting old.
0: I think it's... I mean, it's about a lot of things, but I... This part of the story, before we get into any specifics, is a mistake is made in the past that has been ignored and has gradually led to a crisis increasing in intensity to the point where it threatens all life. And now when a character is finally trying to do something about it, he is continually confounded by people who either don't want to do anything about it or seem actively invested in the catastrophe taking place.
1: So before we get into the story, let's talk about... This one thing. It wins the Hugo Award for uh, best, best Graphic Novel in 2016. And there was some controversy about that. And I don't know if you want to bring that up before sure. we get into that. I the- don't
0: think this is all that important. So we've mentioned before, I think, that the Hugo Awards for a while, and it seems like it's pretty much died out now, were plagued by these uh, these dudes... Led largely by noted shitheel Fox Day, called the Sad Puppies or some of the Rabid Puppies. I don't the know. Sick
1: puppies. I don't
0: know like what the actual relationship between these names and the groups are, or if they're the same thing. But they're essentially a band of reactionary science fiction fans and some science fiction writers, who kind of attempted to hijack the Hugo voting process. And their ideology is pretty closely aligned with stuff like Gamergate and Comicsgate. They're, you know, conservatives. They're not shy about harassing people. They're pretty antagonistic towards women and minorities and all sorts of marginalized people. And they, I don't necessarily think that they, like, got overture nominated because it's a big profile book. It was going to get nominated anyway. I mean, Neil Gaiman is very closely associated with the Hugos. He's won them before. Uh, but they were definitely, at least pretended to be, because there's some conspiracy theory about this, they they expressed enthusiasm for Overture's nomination. And one of the tactics that these sort of far-right groups have is to do stuff like this where they celebrate a person who hasn't explicitly denounced them As a way to try and make that person look like they're on their side, or to force that person to denounce them, and now they get to be in a fight with a big, high-profile person. It's very similar to what we saw with uh, white supremacists embracing Taylor Swift, like, a couple years ago. That was a big deal thing. So, you know, and Neil Gaiman didn't—he said that their involvement was disappointing, and he he denounced them, but he did not withdraw his nomination, which— Rub some people the wrong way, but I I don't necessarily think it's that. I think,
1: well, first of all, I feel like even if it had no interaction, it was sort of tainted. This this victory, this volume would have won anyway because it's like graphically phenomenal. It's like stunning. Yeah, and I feel like if Neil Gaiman would have withdrew the nomination, all of the other people who worked so hard. On this volume would have also been slighted.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it, it's a different thing if it's not your, um, if it's not a solo work. The fact that he had, there's there's a whole team. I mean, I credited Williams, and I think I mentioned Dave Stewart does all the colors, but you know, other there's editors and letterers and all sorts of people work on a comic. Also, like, so the other nominees that year were the Divine. By Boaz, Levy, Asaf Hunaka, and Tomer Hunaka, which is a really good book. Aaron's Dies Alone, Full Frontal Nerdity, and Invisible Republic, Volume 1. Yeah, I think, like, those books are good. I mean, I've never read Full Frontal Nerdity, but the other ones are good. There's no way that Overture wouldn't have beat them anyway.
1: Exactly. Like,
0: I'm sorry, like, all apologies to all those creators, but, like, it was kind of a shoot in And I think that's maybe part of why they so loudly expressed their enthusiasm for it. Because it was, like, going to look like a victory for them no matter what.
1: So let's get started. Let's get right in there. Do you want to give an overarching story plot line? Or do you want to just talk about each individual issue? I
0: think we should definitely talk about each individual issue. I can give a quick rundown. Because the plot is... The ideas are complex. The plot itself is not terribly complex. What it basically is is this takes place right before Sandman number one, when he gets stuck in the bottle. And in a distant part of the galaxy, or the universe, an aspect of dream dies. And it turns out that what's happening is, ages ago there was a vortex, like we saw in the main series, a person who has the ability to connect people in the dreaming and to connect the dreaming to the physical world, and whose powers are uncontrollable. Dream could not bring himself to kill this vortex. And allowed it to sort of get beyond his control. And was finally forced to explode a sun. To stop the spread of the the chaos that the vortex was creating. But he didn't act fast enough. Some of the sort of madness still leaked out. A star, which are are sentient in the Sandman mythos. ...has gone mad and its madness has begun to infect the rest of the universe. And now we're reaching a tipping point where the universe is going to end. And Dream sets out on a quest to put this right. And eventually he sort of is thwarted at every turn and has to, with the help of what he initially believes to be another aspect of himself... ...gather a bunch of people together and do the ritual that we learn about in Dream of a Thousand Cats where he gets all these people to redream the universe where it's fixed and he didn't make the mistake of not killing that vortex.
1: See this is this is what I was talking about in the beginning about if you read it before or you read it after. If you read it after, there's themes that are pre-existing in this that come into play in the main series the, the parts about the vortex the variations, the many manifestations of dream, which you see, like, physically, you see all of these different manifestations. Um, you get to see things like these creatures that he creates. You can very briefly get to see Merv and... Uh, Lucian. Lucian, and then you see the C- Corinthian, and then you see um, also the theme of, like, humans in current times that have a connection to... The dreaming, like you see, Hetty is in this cycle. And I think, like,
0: we get her like origin story. Right. And, and then
1: you sort of get like a little bit of the story about how the dreaming was created, the dream castle, the, um, you get to see the creation of the mat, of the helm. And I feel like if you have that information before you read the series, that it, that, first of all, it doesn't really explain how these things work. So when you read the series, you don't have a better clarification of how things work but i think it takes a lot of the sort of unique elements that are in this series that slowly unravel as you're reading the volumes and sort of pronounces them right in the beginning which is why i think you should read it at the end
0: yeah i mean he's definitely yeah i because it's i think the the dream of a thousand cats thing is a good example of why i don't think this works so well as a introduction because they don't actually explain that, they say like, "Oh, it takes a thousand of you, and you have to dream this thing, and it's going to fix the world." And they offhandedly mention like, "You told a cat about this," and you let, and they then the they offhandedly mention like, "Cats used to be in charge," and it's like you really have to do a lot of brain work to put together what any of that means. But if you read the series, then the second they start talking about that, you immediately know like, "Oh, okay, I get what's happening here."
1: Yeah, and I think that's kind of like if you read it afterwards, they're like the Easter eggs that you that are put in there for the fans who have gone through the whole experience of reading the series and this is sort of like, like just like a cupcake at the end where it has like parts that you know and as you're reading you say, oh, okay. And you start seeing like the background, especially like relevant when he goes to meet Father Time and you start to see elements of like, almost like foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the series. And then as a reader who's already invested and cares about these characters, you're kind of like, oh, okay, you know, I remember when this happened and this is going to happen. And this makes more sense now, now that I'm reading this overture.
0: Yeah. So we get out of this, the like big mythos stuff we get out of this story are we find out the or- where he got his raiments from. Right. We find out where what the scary, why, where the scary came from, and who the woman who appears at the end of a game of you is. We find out definitively that the ritual he describes in Dream of a Thousand Cats does work if it was if it's done correctly. Uh, we find out why he was weak enough to be put in the bottle. We find out how Desire came up with uh, their plan that they enact in the Doll's House. Right. I guess we get to see why the the only thing that I think the big thing that I think this would add though if you read it first is it sort of fixes the stakes in the doll's house and shows you why Dream is so invested and why it is an ethical conundrum what he has to do at the end because when you read the story initially you basically just have to take his word that letting Rose live would be a bad idea
1: yeah I think I mean also some other things that come up is you learn that Dream has a previous history with meddling with the vortexes and then also you get more information about Destiny in this overarching story there's a brief nod to the fact that he berates Dream for causing things to happen that aren't in his book and then later on when you see the ship and you realize what's going on you realize that elements that he creates that are not in the book are what destiny is mentioning when he's in in the series
0: yeah and we see the endless as parents
1: yes and then we also get to see the sort of the ne- the genesis of the um endless gallery that each of the endless has and i think it's also interesting and this is i mean wait what do you mean because you, you see, like, when he's in the prison and he's drawing the sigils. Uh, I didn't think and that then, was
0: the genesis. I thought that was him making, like, a crude copy of it.
1: Right. But then you don't really understand, like, until you're really far into the series that that's the way that they communicate and stay in touch. And mm-hmm. then, you know, the, it's, it's not like... Because it kind of makes it seem like in the main series that those galleries are, like, fixed spaces and time that they have to be in to communicate with each other. And then with this, you realize that they can self-create those moments and those spaces themselves. There's an
0: interesting idea that would be neat to explore in a sort of, like, side story in the Sandman, like, universe. Which is, can anybody make one? Like, if I draw a bunch of sigils on my wall, can I talk to the Endless in this universe? Yeah, I thought, Or does it have to be one of them that does it?
1: That's interesting. I thought... It was- I mean, because you meet their parents and you start to understand a little bit about what makes the Endless as siblings react to each other the way that they do, that maybe it seems like it's like a a coping mechanism as well as a communication mechanism. Yeah, see,
0: that's the other big thing. It's not a mythos thing, but a thematic thing, is this reframes the character of all the Endless, but especially Dream, as being like... The Children of Divorce.
1: Right. And then I think it's also interesting because this is where it's sort of, it's like a time shift where it's not, where you realize it's a prequel, but it might also just be part of the circular logic of time of Dream is that there's lots of mentions about destruction and how he's already gone.
0: Well, he leaves in the, doesn't he leave in like the, the like 1800s? He leaves, we see him like to make his, start to make his decision to leave, isn't it like
1: Yeah, I think it's also important to note that the sort of the current time period that's most specifically identified is the early 1900s. There's an instance with the Corinthian where he clearly dates that as 1915.
0: Yeah, well, that lines up with the idea that this takes place right before, what's his face, Burgess puts him in the bottle.
1: Yes. Yeah, and in fact, I mean, spoiler alert to go right to the very end of the book, the, the last image that you see is that circular panel recreated from the first volume of sandman where he's in his helm and he's laying on the floor and -hmm. you can clearly see that he has just been captured
0: this is such an unimportant nitpicky thing but do you do you think that they just copied the panel or did williams try to recreate the sam keith drawing
1: I didn't look at both of them together, but I just assumed that it was, because it was done in the style Mm -hmm. of, it was almost, it was closer in style to the Mm -hmm. Overture artwork. I think, I I
0: thought it looked like the, almost exactly like the panel from the original one.
1: I think it's, I think if it is a, if it is a reproduction, it's very close to it.
0: Yeah. I think uh, there
1: might be more detail in this one.
0: It doesn't it doesn't matter like at all if it's what I was just wondering. But
1: I think what it is is it, it that's when you realize at the very end cuz all through the time that you're reading the overture, you know that it takes place before the main series, but you don't know that it is like
0: directly directly
1: before. the reason why he's captured.
0: Uh yeah. So let's get into specifics maybe. Oh, well, before that, what did you think about the art? Because the art is very visually dense and uses very few traditional panels. There are lots of pages that barely even have panels. They're just kind of like natural borders in the art are supposed to break up the time for you.
1: I think what's interesting, I mean, I don't know how much... I know a lot has changed in writing comics and drawing comics from the early 2000s. To 2013, 2015, but what I was reading part of the deluxe companion information about the artwork. There's a lot of mixing of traditional pen and ink drawings with computer enhancements that you start to see in some of the the really large because most of them are most of the panels are like a whole page. Yeah, or two or two pages. And then you have that sort of non-traditional panel style. You know, there's one of them is amazing. It's like the panels are the Corinthians' teeth.
0: But you're viewed from inside yes. his mouth out. So you're seeing the back uh, of his teeth. And mm-hmm. then each panel is drawn onto one of the teeth. Yeah. I think it's supposed to be the view through his eyes, exactly. right? Exactly.
1: As Dream is on that path with the... Cat of Dreams, or Dream Cat. I don't even know what the cat's name is. And its
0: name is Dream. They're both Dream. Dream I mean, cat. I think I, with the distinction I would make here to, is Morpheus is the, the guy we know, the Robert Smith looking...
1: Sandman. Sandman.
0: Then Daniel is the new version of him that shows up after he dies in The Kindly Ones. And the cat can just be the cat.
1: And the cat is the cat. But you start to see as they move towards... Fulfilling the quest of finding out what's going on and going to the city of stars, that sort of frenetic, crazed, sort of very avant-garde, very sort of organic panel start to like become more prevalent, and you realize like the frenetic energy is increasing, and I think that's one of the things that's really nice about this. But this. Entire volume seems more lush. And I don't know if it's because it's computer and traditional art.
0: It's, yeah, it's the very colors
1: vivid. are very vivid. It's kind I mean, it explodes completely to the edge of the page. There's no border. And if there's borders between the panels, they're oftentimes just thin lines. Mm-hmm. So it feels like almost every page is like a painting. And it's very sort of high-end, very luxe, very avant-garde. I mean, and especially in the series, you see multiple styles of artwork depending mm. on the story, but this one consistently keeps the style of artwork through the entire run.
0: Yeah, it's definitely closer in that regard, closer to something like The Kindly Ones or A Game of You, where it's one artist working with him. Uh, yeah, and there's lots of interesting techniques here. There's the te- It was probably lost on us because we read it digitally. But I believe towards the end of the book, there's, like, a three-page fold-out, almost like a centerfold thing. Like, the very big page where he's being blasted across the universe that's, like, in front of a starfield, I believe that had, like, a third page that folded out. There's a sequence where Delirium shows up that you have to read by turning the comic around, like... Twisting it because her words spiral around the border of the page.
1: But I think also that is disorient. It's even more disorienting when you read it as like an ebook, yeah, because you can't turn your device to because it's going to orient it back to the original page. So you end up having to read it in that spiral.
0: Well, you could also lock. You could- right. on, the- on the iPad, I could rotate lock it and just sort of twist my thing around to read it, or you can turn your head around the page. Uh, but yeah and then there's just a tons of non-traditional panels there's even pages that have traditional panels he'll do an interesting thing where on some of them where he essentially does one big painting for the page and then lays a panel layout on top of it to cut up the single image and then place different iterations of the characters at different points
1: I mean I also like It's almost
0: like a um a long exposure photo
1: I also like the, I mean, you always see many manifestations of dream in the main series, but I really liked especially these manifestations of dream in this this run. I like this sort of, there's one scene where he's a flower, and then there's another scene where it's the early 1900s, and he's wearing an overcoat, and you can see the flames are yeah. like hinted on the overcoat. So I really like, and then all the other versions throughout the galaxy of different variants of dream, which are not even, some of them are not even human. Some of them have very nebulous forms. And yeah. I think that's really interesting. One of the things that I was surprised to find lacking in this is the lack of like, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of symbolism and there's a lot of repeating motifs, but there's really no not a huge nod to like, literature or pop culture or even like sort of like the other comic universe that you see in the main series
0: yeah there's there's a there's a couple they've mentioned the green lanterns yes um yeah there's not a ton of literary literary references this is almost almost like a straight up just like a sci-fi story yeah i don't know I, i think there's the references are maybe just more subtle they're like You know, there's a very mythic structure to Dream's thing, like, to Dream's quest in this. He has to trek along a barren trail to the city of the stars, and, like, he gets thrown into a black hole. Like, it has a... Its references are more in, like, the construction of the tale than they are in any specifics. We don't see any, like, literary characters show up. There's no... Character that's supposed to be like Herman Melville or yeah, something like you true. might get in the regular Sandman series.
1: But you know what I was thinking about? Because I thought that and I was like, huh, this is disappointing. But I thought, it like, what if it was a conscious effort? Because in the main series, as Dream grows and he matures yeah. and he sort of becomes more um, compassionate, he starts to interact more with the humans. Yeah. And I feel like once he starts, to inter- like when he starts to interact with Hobbes and he befriends, be friends. And even like when he's there with Rose and the whole thing with the princess. I feel like maybe the insertion of pop culture and contemporary literature might have something to do with the fact that he's himself becoming more human. Because maybe. he's very celestial. He's very sort of... Um, unearthly like he's he's the dream that's like the most like morpheus the god that you would see in the entire series
0: yeah all right so let's get into this really so issue one uh like i said it opens with the death of this specific single aspect of dream is this like the dream for this race of sentient flowers and he's conversing with a flower in its dream and suddenly bursts into flames and then we get a whole we get a little bit of sequence where the corinthian is going to some office to i guess like lure this office worker out to behind a pub so he can murder him and so it's like this is this is the corinthian so i guess the arc we we're to understand for the corinthian here is he's just murdering people now he's just a serial killer on the loose he has a bit of confrontation with Dream, which presumably inspires him to start trying to inspire serial killers, which leads him to become the thing that he is in the doll's house when Dream Unmakes him.
1: Yeah, and I also think it sets the precedent that there I mean he he sort of nods to Dream nods to the fact that he has to undo Corinthian multiple times.
0: Well, that's his plan to do here, right?
1: So then, that's when you realize in the pre- in the series he has done that in the past.
0: Yeah, uh, we get destiny reading his book. He calls death to him. They have a conversation about how an aspect of dream has died, galaxies away. They we cut to a different art office that takes that exists in the dreams. In the Dreaming, where Morpheus shows up to have his meeting with the Corinthian and, like, chastises him. I'm trying to find the thing, because I know he, he, like...
1: He threatens to unmake him. He mentions him as a nightmare, and he threatens to unmake him.
0: Yeah, but, oh, but he says, my creation subjects remain in the Dreaming. They affect sleepers and dreamers, Corinthian. They do not walk the waking world. They do not kill mortals for pleasure. Like, I feel like this conversation is supposed to be the Corinthian's inspiration for trying to turn other people into serial killers to to make them kill instead of mostly doing it by himself.
1: Yeah, and I think it also shows you that there's a long history of the Corinthian being one of Morpheus's favorite creations.
0: Yeah, but then before he can ungrade the Corinthian, he is called away and shows up back in the Dreaming where he has a conversation with Lucian... And puts on his garb and flies away across the universe to meet up with the other aspects of himself to discuss the death of one of their number. And we get this huge two-page splash page uh, with... I mean, this might actually be another fold-out now that I think about it. But we get this huge page with all of these different aspects of Dream. There's a big cat. There's a, like a bug one. There's like an abs- like a Picasso-looking like, cubist version of him. There's a bunch of different aliens and a robot. There's one
1: that's so big you can only see the hand.
0: Yeah. There's one that's very obvious. There's a one in a tuxedo with jet black skin and white hair, which is a literary reference, because that's a reference to Jerry Cornelius.
1: Oh, okay. I like the sort of robotic one that is. it's like a robot, but its head is shaped like the helm. I thought that was interesting. And then... There's a fish. There's a fish one. There's a moon-shaped head one. There's lots of ones that sort of...
0: I like this, like, there's, like, an alien one with green skin and four arms. Who's wearing, like, gloves and this, like, big billowy open shirt. I really love... And he has, like, three eyes. It's I think kind that...
1: of like an Elvis hairdo, like a pompadour.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that one's so, like a, a, supposed to be, like, a tribute to, like, Brendan McCarthy or something. I really like the aesthetics of that one. I want to see cool 70s sci-fi dream.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could see the one where he has the patchwork quilt on. And, I mean, it's very interesting.
0: Yeah, and so we find out that they've all been gathered here. And that Morpheus, the the version of Dream we are familiar with, is the last one to arrive.
1: You know what I think is interesting, though? Every single one of these manifestations... Well, uh, okay. I was going to say none of them have the ruby. But some of them do.
0: Yeah, you can see, like... There's like a like a Jack kirby looking like Space God one he has it on like his helmet the uh, Jerry Cornelius one has it in his lapel yeah they 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 don't it's not immediately obvious where it is on all of them but some of them do have it and they get a little playful with the placement like there's one where he's like a this like washed out painting and he's wearing it on his belt. there's another like comic book sort of Steve Dicka looking one who also has it on his belt and that's the end of issue one. Like it basically ends with them being like, Hey, we all got called here and Dream's like oh, but, but, what?
1: <laughs> As he oftentimes is.
0: And issue two cuts to Daniel. So now we're we are we we are back in the present. I mean this is another argument that this is should be read after because the when Daniel shows up, there's a little capture that says now.
1: Yeah implying also- that the
0: present is after Dream has died in the Kindly Ones.
1: I like this sort of cover too because you don't see him because his role takes place after the overture. But you see the raven. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, is that Matthew? Is Matthew back? And then I realized that Matthew would not be in this because...
0: Yeah, he hasn't shown up yet. Right. He's, a, he's not even alive to be dead yet. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so...
1: It's interesting, too, when Daniel shows up, the artwork becomes very modern there's mm-hmm. lots of angular um lines. There's lots of sort of quick cuts. The color like he, you know Daniel's depicted as being gray or white. There's no
0: inks in Daniel's.
1: Yes. He's, uh he's, rendering.
0: He's, he's just uh shades of white and gray. I think it's just it's maybe watercolors or maybe it's just colors over pencils.
1: Right. And then he has his his green stone.
0: Yeah. Uh, and he and Lucien are having a conversation. He's supposed to do some courtly stuff, but he has another mysterious obligation, which requires him to show up and talk to Hedy, who we remember from the original series being this sort of like Oracle, Greek choir character who was kind of in the background of a lot of things.
1: I also think that all through the main series, Hetty sort of represented like this sort of... Um, time of being like aware like consciously aware of like time's passage or traveling through time and I think it sort of hits that really hard yeah because she ends up having the watch you know that's very much important
0: so she tells us her origin which is very sad
1: it is very sad
0: which is basically I mean it's you know she got depressed After horrible things happen to her, I think, what is her uh, husband and her son die? Right. And she gets depressed, and the society's response...
1: Is to put her into a mental hospital.
0: Yeah, and I think the implication is this happened, like, you know, in the 20s or something like that.
1: You really never know how old Hetty is.
0: Yeah, well, because she has a weird relationship with time. Right. Uh, And it
1: also sort of pre supposes that Daniel and Hetty have a relationship. Because she knows him when he comes and they talk casually, like it seems like he like you're to assume that she has either seen him before or talked to him before, or just realizes that he is dream dream.
0: Yeah, and so they have to go back to the asylum where she like her so her story is basically she was Wrongful, You know, she was imprisoned in this horrible mental asylum and then was released and at that point didn't have the resources to handle living, you know, essentially time displaced, like 20 years or whatever it was since she had been put in there. And she returned to the ruins of the asylum and passed into Delirium's realm and became what she is now. Which is, like, this sort of, like, reframes her as kind of, um, like, of having a more direct relationship with Delirium. Like, being a kind of a, uh, maybe not necessarily, like, an aspect of her, but, like,
1: I see having
0: her. a sort of, like, deeper... I'm trying to think of examples of characters that have this with the other Endless.
1: I see her as Delirium's companion in the same way that Hobbes mm-hmm. is Dream's companion. And then, like, even the parts where Death talks to the other people and she's... Talk- like, there, there's a, a point where each of the Endless has a connection with a human being. Yeah. Because originally I thought, I was like, okay, are they, is this going to unravel in the way that there's going to be human representatives for all of the Endless? And that doesn't happen. But it's very clear that, like, whatever is fogging Hetty's mind, which may actually not be a mental illness, but just this sort of the fluidity of time and how it affects her because she's kind of like befuddled, but she's not befuddled because she's befuddled because time is in her world different than the way that other people see it.
0: Yeah. And it turns out that she has uh, that hidden in this asylum is this weird watch thing, which we don't initially know the importance of, but is do they name it here? the seculum
1: no but you know what it's interesting when you look at the watch it has like almost sigils on it
0: yeah it's like it's not it doesn't have uh, numbers <laughs> also doesn't have hands right and daniel picks this up and uh returns to his meeting and then we cut back to 1915 and to dream meeting with all of his other selves
1: you know what's interesting in the background of this? There, he, there's one of the aspects of Dream. That it looks like he's wearing almost like a Superman uniform.
0: Yeah, there. Yeah, he's got like he he has like a uh, a symbol on his chest that in the Superman shape, but it's like a like an hourglass
1: or something. Yeah, yeah.
0: There's a gorilla one. There's a bird one.
1: There's one that reminds me a little bit of Martian Manhunter.
0: Yeah, the I one, mean
1: one that's like almost like Groot.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of them. So they're all really cool looking. There's like one in a witch hat. There's a clown one. <laughs> but yeah, so they're all like talking amongst themselves and having this really confusing conversation. And eventually the decision is made to consult with the oldest version of Dream, which you mentioned before. Uh,
1: which I I think, what do they call that?
0: The glory? No, the glory is a thing that comes up later. This is just, just the oldest version of Dream. He was the dream of the first created, those that sleep in the space beneath space. And he's like this big Cthulhu monster in You know what I, thought, I was going to
1: say? I thought that maybe that was meant to be like the Cthulhu's dream.
0: I think that is the is the idea. Okay, here, that's right?
1: very exciting. I like that. Yeah, because it's kind of weird. It has like a triangular pupil. It has a triangular
0: <laughs> eye and a triangular mouth, and that's all that's on its face. And then the rest of it is just like a mass of tentacles under a robe.
1: Yeah, that was very... I like that a lot. And And it's the same way the panels... Like, there's this sort of painting in the background that's, like, this nebulous, like, vaguely abstracted, like, galaxy. And then over it, they have the panels of of the story.
0: Yeah. And they consult with the old version of Dream. And he gives them a long speech... And he basically tells them that uh, the universe is ending. The laws of reality are breaking down. And he gives the first hint at their parents. Because he says, we are the heirs of time and night. Where there are laws, there are those that must... He disappears. And all this is when all the other versions of dreams start disappearing. And... The idea is that, like, from each of their perspectives, it looks like all the other ones are disappearing except for them. Right. So, like, presumably, I think it lases this interesting idea where it's like, if we could shift our perception, we could read a version of this story where the main character is, like, the fish dream. If we were viewing this story from the perspective of a fish. But we're reading the story from the perspective of a person, so the dream that we see is the human dream.
1: I also think it's interesting that the last couple of pages, the panel is set in the ruby.
0: Yeah, so this is, he decides to go talk to his parents. Right. And so he enters into the ruby, and that's when he talks to Glory, who's this, like... There there must be some reference here at work that I don't understand, but he's just like like an old guy with mutton chops. I'm wondering if maybe the idea is that, like, he is to... Time as Lucian is to dream.
1: I was wondering that. I was also thinking that maybe it was like spent supposed to be like some kind of like reference to like an almighty god or like a timekeeper because he sort of looks a little bit like he could be like a modern god or he could be like Charles Darwin or do you know what I mean? Like he could be like if you worship like a spiritual entity or you were a practical person who relied on science like this would be the ultimate authority
0: so one of the things while this does answer this story answers a lot of questions one of the concepts that it brings up that it never actually clarifies is what exactly is the first circle right which is something that uh dream says he needs to consult with and glory identifies himself as glory of the first circle
1: yeah, I think he might either be like an entity that is like of the same generation as his parents. Yeah. Or maybe even his like grandfather because he does sort of have like a grandfather-y kind of Apparently he's vibe.
0: appeared in other Sandman-related stuff like the Books of Magic and Endless Nights. So this is not, I don't think is the first appearance of this character.
1: So he doesn't appear in the main series.
0: Yeah. Apparently, what the only thing we really know is that This Council of the First Circle, whatever it is or they are, they gathered early on in the creation of the universe. Glory is one of them, and presumably the Endless's parents are also. But that's it. But they have a conversation inside the ruby, which looks really fucking cool.
1: Yeah, and then so then he decides he's going to go. Does he decide first he's going to go to the City of Stars or that he's going to talk to his parents? Because he ends up leaving with the cat.
0: Yeah. Oh, uh, he says, there's
1: one more thing I must do to deal with this matter.
0: Well, Glory is the one who basically tells him why this is happening. He explains that, like, you fucked up when you didn't kill the, the Vortex immediately. And now... Or, well, no, he doesn't explain that. He just explains a star is mad. And that's what's causing this. And it's creating this, like, metaphysical cancer in the fabric of the universe. There's also a really cool visual technique here where... Dream picks up the ruby and it like grows and then the facets of the ruby are like sliding out and there are panels on one page and then on the next page are assembled into the ruby and we get a couple pages of that and then a page of them breaking apart again and going back into the setting from before. And then we get the first glimpse of Dream's mom, Knight. Yeah. Who I think the idea is she's called Night, but I think the idea is she's like
1: the Void. Yeah, and I think like it's kind of like I don't know if it's a spoiler at this point because we're going to talk about it in like five minutes. But her, his father is Father Time, and his mother is Mother Night.
0: Well, yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she—they're divorced. They don't, and they don't live together, and. Mm-hmm.
1: It's very complicated.
0: She's All that really happens in the scene with Knight is she gets warned by like her handmaiden that uh, war is happening in the universe, and she doesn't seem to care all that much. And then uh, the cat version of Dream is still hanging around. They start to have their conversation about the vortex thing, and the cat is like, I'm going to come with you on your journey so you don't have to be alone, even though I'm you and you're me and whatever, and we're both going this way, so let's just walk together.
1: Yeah, and then he sort of ends by saying, you think your dad's going to be happy to see us?
0: <laughs> yeah. And that's the end of issue two. Issue three, we get a lot of, like, "Here, here's the world ending. All of these aliens are showing up to fight each other, and there's all these factions we've never seen before. And some of them are invested in the end of the world, and some of them aren't invested in the end of the world. And they're all, the battle lines are gathering in space... Uh the Space Canine Patrol Corps, the Green Lantern Corps, the Free Houses, all send representatives, all conclude that this is not a justice matter and they leave behind only observers.
1: I think it's interesting because it kind of reminds me, it's very much it makes me think of like Thanos and that mm-hmm. sort of like comic book style of like the final countdown, the final showdown.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then Dream and the Cat Dream show up on this, like, Wild West planet, and we get a version of Dream where his robe is a duster and the ruby is a bolo tie.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like, um, you know, like Stephen King, like the tower, the Dark Tower.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's this very, this whole sequence on this planet, Dart is very heavily influenced by Mobius, the French artist. And I think a lot of this, the like, especially in the backgrounds, draw a lot on his style. And on, like, he, he has a Western comic called Blueberry that I think is getting remodished a little bit here. And, um, you know, they wander around in this Old West place. Uh, they walk into the Kindly Ones.
1: Yeah, I thought this was an interesting version of the Kindly Ones because they seem less... They don't seem powerful at all. Yeah. And it's sort of like, in a lot of ways, they're sort of... Begging and asking for some kind of, like, favor from they Dream. They
0: want to give him... It's interesting, the dynamic here. They want to give him information and he doesn't want to take it from them.
1: Right. And they also want the cat, which is...
0: Yeah. <laughs> which I think is maybe our first hint that the cat is not entirely what it seems to be. Because they would know. if They wouldn't see the cat. well i guess they would i don't know i think the fact that other people can see the cat is the first is a big hint that the cat isn't what it says it is right uh but he leaves them behind without he doesn't really get any information from uh they tell him this path leads to his death and he's like uh so does every path
1: right because he (laughs) yes because he's been hearing that from the kindly ones in many manifestations i'm sure but they are really sort of like they they seem almost more desperate than the kindly ones that you see in the main series. Well, they know
0: it's the end of the universe. Uh, and then he
1: gets mugged by the clash. But I think it's interesting that this panel, this is one of the most, I think, provocative panels, the whole page. The panels are set in the side view of a hand.
0: Yeah, so then it's like the lines of the hand where you would do fortune telling, like oracles like the kindly one would do. Are the break up the panels?
1: I also like this sort of version of Dream where he's wearing that duster and the flames are at the bottom. So yeah. you like, so you know, okay, this is the Morpheus that you're going to see in the main series.
0: Mm. And then they get mugged by the Clash.
1: Yes, I like that. I mm. like it's kind of like combat rock, kind of like a little bit like Piccolo. I really, I, re- I thought it was really great. It's just
0: like two green skin aliens, mm. but they're very clearly drawn to be joe strummer and mick jones oh
1: definitely he even has i mean when he smiles he's got the teeth, he's got the teeth. uh yeah that's like that's i a- think
0: this might also be another comics reference to you i think they may be drawn to also to invoke dr and Quinch, who are two early alan moore characters from when he was working on Two Thousand AD.
1: yeah i think they're like
0: space delinquents and uh dream puts them to endless sleep and it turns out that these guys are like bandits, and they raided this house and killed this family, but they left the daughter alive because she was hiding, and she becomes Dream's third companion on right. this journey.
1: Which is a very common thing, where he's always on this sort of epic quest, and he, I mean, she's not human, she's obviously a, a space creature, or, Yeah. but I mean, he always sort of picks up like a straggler, a stray, or some person or entity that sort of shows him that he lacks a sense of, like, humanity. Well, yeah, she kind of
0: plays the role that Matthew plays in um, Brief Lives, where she's, like, the third companion. She's left the more human perspective. She's kind of, like, this sort of more down-to-earth person that cuts through some of their bullshit. I mean, when we find out later, the revelation of the cat makes this construction of this party even more, like the group we see in Brief Lives, where it's right. Delirium and Dream and Matthew. But yeah, she's like this scrappy kid. He's like... There's, I really like this part where she's like... Uh, he's, he's like, uh, I put them to sleep. And she, she's like... Oh, no, he says they're asleep. And she says, did you do that? Did you make them sleep? And he goes, yes. And she says, I don't understand. Why didn't you kill them? And he says, this is worse. And her response is, oh, good. Mm-hmm.
1: I also think it's interesting because we had just read The Ocean at the End of the Lane. There's a part in here where he asks her specifically if she wants to forget what happened to her father. And she says no, just like the little boy in The Ocean at the End of the Lane. She says that you knowing what happened is going to make her stronger. Something
0: – well, yeah. This is – there's a lot of similarities, I think, thematically between this and the end of the lane. Because like I said, we get the divorce stuff, the Dream's relationship to his parents. I mean, these were written around the same time, so he must have been really going through something in regards to parenthood and relationships.
1: Yeah, that's why I thought it was like – when you said it was like Neil dealing with climate change, I thought it was Neil dealing with like, you know – I definitely think there's some aging real... Aging or maturing in some way.
0: We'll get to it further on, but I definitely think there's some real climate anxiety stuff in here.
1: Yes, definitely. I think this is also, too, where you learn about the story of... What is her name? Alamora? Eleanora. Alenora, and how the scary was created, and that becomes important.
0: Yeah, so they, um, they're journeying along... And eventually they stop to rest, and she asks Dream to tell her a story. Also, there's this cool page where they're walking along this, like, bridge of Earth that's suspended over, like, a star. And there's, like, a giant monster holding it up, and you get to see some monster wang, which is fun <laughs> for everybody. Um, of the, some of the s- these, like, beetles who are invested in the world ending show up and have, like, an argument with Dream, and he s- scares them off.
1: I like how they're described as they like to wait for the end of the world to make art from it. Mm-hmm. I thought that was an interesting that's a very yes. punk, but a very punk rock kind of like statement. But then, then that's also
0: I think like another climate thing. Like these are you know, people make are making stuff like they have they're getting a material benefit from the world ending. They're like the corporations that are, are profiting off of fossil fuels as those The emissions from those fuels destroy the earth and and threaten all of our lives.
1: I mean, the whole journey takes place in almost what looks like a wasteland. Yeah. And then sort of, it's the same thing, like the two alien creatures that are supposed to be Joe Strummer and Mick Jones, they're sort of like these scavengers that Mm -hmm. are existing in this sort of wasted world. Yeah,
0: they're like the lower level reflection of these sort of higher level aliens that are all jazzed about the end of the world and making money off of exploiting the this cruelty that arises from the situation but yeah then dream tells her the story uh where he was uh attacked by these old gods who wanted to take over the dreaming and they overpowered him and threw him into prison and he tried to reach out to his uh siblings for help and none of them could or would help him And this seems to be, like, early on in the process of Delirium, becoming Delirium from Delight. Because she's one of the ones he contacts and she's like, no, I can't do anything. And Desire's like, no, I don't want to help you, you suck.
1: But I also like where, when he ends up battling these old gods and he defeats them, he says that he makes the door out of their horns and he fashions... His helm from the bones of the one that hurt him the most.
0: Yeah, so this this radiant woman shows up to help him, named uh, which he names he. She doesn't have a name initially, and he names her Alianora. And, and we get this like gender flipped fairy tale story where she's like uh, she's like oh this is just like all the fairy tales where the prince is captured and he needs the strong princess to save him. And they work together and fall in love and defeat the gods. And then, like you said, he he makes his stuff out of them. And then she asks him what happens after that. And what happens is what we would expect to happen with pre-character development Dream. Which he's a big asshole towards her.
1: Of course, because that's how he is.
0: And eventually he's like, well, let's just break up. And she's like, I can't go home. I've changed too much from being here with you also i think maybe she didn't exist before she showed up the implication i don't know if it's ever confirmed but the implication is that she was created by desire
1: right to, to help
0: and so he builds the scary for her as a place for her to live away from him and then she, we know that she's the person that shows up at the very end of a game of you
1: yeah i kind of I, I i didn't really know if he had told that story where she was the princess that rescued him because she he was trying to make a story for Hope, mm-hmm. where, she, you know, the the hero of the story is someone that she could relate to.
0: Yeah, but I mean, like, if we go back to Sandman Rules, and it doesn't really matter whether or not it actually happened, all that matters is that's the story he told, so that's the story it is. Yes. And then the stars show up.
1: Right, and then that's sort of the... the The huge last page is sort of like a pyramid shape, and you see him from the front, and you see the star city in the middle, then you see him from the back, and he's either on fire or about to set something on fire.
0: Yeah. Uh, Then we get issue four. This one has my favorite cover, the McKean cover for this one. That's him, like, looking at a book, and there's, like, a page cut out of it, and planets are falling through the hole in the book.
1: Yeah, I like that, and it obviously looks like, you know, like an alchemical textbook, because it has this sort of, um, sit like, this graph that's like a circle, like a planetary circle, and it has sort of, like, this marginalia all around it. Very interesting. Uh,
0: yeah, and so then in the next issue, it opens with him uh, passing into the realm of his father to talk with time, who looks like destruction— Uh, and every, like, time we see him, he's, like, shifting around at different ages. So we see, like, him him as an old man, and him as a young boy, and him in, like, middle age.
1: I think it's interesting, because the artwork is very pop art, very, like, Peter Max, very, like, 60s, 70s, and kind of, like, you get this sort of bearded man with the long hair, and then you see very, all these variations, but he always has this green and yellow outfit on.
0: yeah. Uh, he, his word panels are, his word balloons are gray with white text in contrast to dreams which are black, uh, with white text and he's like, none of my kids ever visit me except for destiny, but like, it's destiny, you know? (laughs) And, um, he dreams like, can you help me? And he's like, no, not really. Because you stole my. Seculum. Which we find, so we find out that he wants that and then he's also like uh this is where i think he expresses like that he sort of misses night and i think this is kind of where dream starts to concoct this plan that like maybe he can get him back to or maybe he already had that that plan but like we'll see the payoff to that in a little bit
1: yeah and i kind of you kind of get this sort of implied like Adam and Eve kind of vibe from them because at one point he's actually even just eating an apple mm-hmm. and then like Morpheus says to him like,' have you talked to Mother and that's when you realize that maybe Father Time is still pining for her
0: mm-hmm.
1: but you could yeah you obviously can start to see that there's a reason why the endless are so Focused on being independent and self sufficient, mm-hmm. because they really don't get any support from their parents or their creators. I guess it's clearly stated that that's his father.
0: Yeah, uh, and then the dream goes into the city of the stars, and they're uh, they're dicks. The stars are mean, and they're they've been keeping the mad star captive
1: right because they know that the madness is spreading but they don't want to end the star's life which is why they're kind of like they want to punt morpheus into the sun because they don't want him messing with this well
0: i think the reveal is they've all been infected already with whatever is fucking up the the mad star who acts like a really like like a dark reflection of delirium Uh, when Dream shows up and talks to him. Like, he keeps calling him brother and getting all confused. And Dream tells the story about how, you know, there was this vortex and he couldn't bring himself to kill her. And eventually it got out of control and he had to blow up the sun. And so because he hesitated to do his duty, he had to do something a lot worse than he would have initially. And he ended up trading millions of lives for the life of one person, which he still had to end anyway. And we get a little sequence where Destruction shows up and he's like, hey, like, dude, if you don't do this, then I'm going to have to do it. And what I'm going to have to do is destroy the universe.
1: <laughs> Which is why you realize later on in the main series why Destruction kind of wants a bailout of. Yeah. Of his role in The Endless.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't want to be the the universe's executioner.
1: I really like the part where it goes back to his father and you see him and he's got these sort of cards and he's trying to read the future. And the cards all have images of what's happening both in this story arc as well as what happens in the main story arc.
0: Yeah, Rape Over... So the stars tell him like, hey, we want the universe... The universe is ending and we're going to let it end. Like... Where the stars and everything has to end. And we're gonna put the cat version of you in a zoo and we're gonna delete this kid. And the kid's like, I don't wanna be deleted. I'm my name's I'm Hope. And then Dream gets pulled back into time's realm.
1: Yeah, and this is where they have that sort of heartfelt moment where he says, If you talk to your mother, tell her I'm thinking about her
0: Yeah, that's when I, th- I, I thought that happened earlier, but yeah. Uh, and he's like, yeah, you returned the Seculum to me. Good job. I'm going to help you. <laughs> and Dream's like, what? I did?
1: Well, and then he gets sucked away, and you don't know where he's being sucked into until the next issue, which is number five. But I think it's interesting, this whole concept of, like, a star is a sentient being, and that it can suffer from an endless madness.
0: Yeah. Well, we get there's so We didn't read it, I don't think, but in one of the collections, of short story is, there's a little story... That involves, like, a meeting of the stars and, like, the Rao, like, the star of Krypton is, like, in that story. Oh,
1: really?
0: So, like, this idea of the sentry stars is set up in an earlier Sandman comic. But then this issue ends with the stars obliterating Hope and Dream getting sucked into a black hole. Which, like, yeah, dude, I get it. Hope is dead and and now we're in an inescapable super darkness And then uh, the next issue starts with Dream in the darkness, passing... Th- now that he's in the ultimate darkness, he passes through into Night's realm to talk to his mom. Uh, and then we get, like... And so this, we get him talking to Night, intercut with what's going on in the broader universe, which is that everything is breaking down, and there's this war at the end of time, and something is moving through the carnage and rescuing people and giving them, like, help and comfort. And night is like, uh, I don't care if the universe ends, but, like, I can make a realm for you here and you can be here and you'll be safe and fine and I'm not going to get back together with your dad and you're a child for thinking that that... Because he, he realizes that this plan is, like, time and night will get back together and basically restart the universe and fix the universe and make everything Okay. And this is maybe my most, my favorite part of this whole story, which is like, this whole time it's like, oh, this is pre-character development Dream. So he's like more immature than the Dream we get later on in the series. And most of the time how that manifests when we see Dream in an earlier time period is just that he's colder, more distant, more vindictive. Uh, but this is him where he is childish, like he's sad and, like, foolish, and he just wants Mommy and Daddy to get back together because that will literally fix everything.
1: Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that's not an unreasonable way for a child of divorce to act. But I think I guess she kind of makes him a compromise. That could be, like, you could be here in a version of the dreaming where you don't know what's happening outside of the world.
0: Well, yeah, she offers him the situation where she... she can protect him and only him from the consequences of his mistake I mean it is like this like you know very like retreat into the arms of mother and like abdicate your responsibility and let everything else get fucked up
1: yeah Here's the thing, too. When I said there really wasn't a lot of literary references, Mother Night is a really big literary reference.
0: Well, yeah. It's a Kurt Vonnegut novel. It's
1: a Kurt Vonnegut novel, but it's also a character from Faustus, Mm -hmm. which is kind of more in line with how she behaves.
0: Yeah, she's very sinister. Yeah,
1: I think it's definitely a, a nod to Kurt Vonnegut because even the color of her, like the blues and the blacks, and the yellows are sort of reflections of the original first edition cover of mother night
0: yeah and I, I like the i like the way that the parents are kind of have aspects of the the children in them because it's like time has sort of like destiny's perspective on things but he's immutable like delirium is and he's kind of a sad sack like dream and he looks like destruction and then mother knight is sort of like manipulative and vindictive like desire and kind of fatalistic like death and visually she has lots of i mean she's you know she's drawn as to be uh you know almost like a sort of like art nouveau like rubenesque woman Mm -hmm. so she's got like kind of has the similar proportions to uh despair but she's also has like a lot of the like shadow um visual motif that dream
1: has yeah definitely
0: but yeah so he is like not getting anywhere with this and he's rejecting her offer to be safe from the consequences of his actions and he falls back into the darkness and then we cut to destiny's garden where a ship belonging to dream has appeared which is full of people that the cat version of dream has saved from the war at the end of the universe. And then he's so, Destiny gets so mad that this ship, that he doesn't know what it is, and it's not in his book, and it clearly belongs to his brother, is junking up his garden, that he uses his powers to pull Dream out of the black hole and into the garden.
1: Well, I think it's interesting, too, because the panels are drawn in a way that shows Destiny's book. Yeah. Which is interesting because you never, in the main series, you only get to see the spine in the covers of the book. Or you see Destiny reading in the book, but now it's almost like you can also read Destiny's book. But I don't know. I wasn't clear. It wasn't clear to me if he knew where Dream was and he rescued him and he used this premise of the ship to do it, or he just was like, I can't deal with Dream anymore. I got to get him out. Well, yeah. I
0: mean, that's the thing with Destiny is his, his, whether, how active a decision he's making is always obscure. Like, it's, it's the same thing. That's why we were talking about in the original series, I was like, oh, I think Destiny's this really sad character, because I always read into him that he wants to take more action and he wants to help his family, but he is kind of bound by what he reads in the book, and so he has to find these sneaky ways to fake doing his duty to, like, do things like call that family meeting that leads to the argument with destruction and, like, this... Because he knows the dream is supposed to be in the black hole. He says, like, according to my book, you're in this black hole. And he's like, but your fucking boat is here.
1: (laughs) I want you to come and get it.
0: Get your goddamn boat out of my room. Uh, And so he pulls him out. And yeah, it's, like, unclear if he's doing that because he really wants the boat to get through or because that's just a convenient enough excuse he needs to take action and save his brother from being destroyed in a black hole.
1: But I also think, I mean, it's kind of like... Maybe that's why Destiny does not get involved in more in the main series because he has had enough of Dream messing up his book and messing up his sort of private oasis that he has. Because, I mean, when you see him, he's always in his garden and it's quiet and mm. it's nice and it's orderly. And then here comes your brother who just brings a lot of chaos with him.
0: Mm -hmm. The whole boat full of space idiots.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. A thousand space guys. And then when he shows up, he almost looks like he's like a captain of a ship because he's got a peacoat on and a red scarf.
0: (laughs) see him shift into that as he gets on the ship and it's a great look. Yeah, it turns into a peacoat and he gets a scarf and it's like cool boat captain sailor dream, which I like that look a lot. I like the, there's a lot of great, obviously, because we saw all the different aspects, there's a lot of great dream looks in this series. But I really like the western one, and I really like this, um, the boat one. Because when he shows up, he's in the, when he's in the black hole, he's in, like, the most basic version of the dream appearance. Where he is, just has the, like, raggedy, flowing black robe with, like, the big, like, open chest. And then he walks onto the boat, and he gets into this boat. Captain outfit, uh, and he goes below decks and he sees all the people, and we get all these cool aliens. There's very obviously a transformer.
1: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but he has sort of like a Galactus face.
0: Yeah, and there's um, a plant guy, cat guy, fish bird. guy. We see the a bird person get rescued earlier when we're getting the cuts into what's happening in the in the dream.
1: And um, there's like almost this. This one is very um, swamp thing, very plant elemental in the corner. You can see like his face and his hand reaching up.
0: Yeah. And so the cat dream rescues Hope from the afterlife. And we find out in the next issue that she is incredibly important to this whole venture.
1: Right. Definitely.
0: And then, so what the next bulk of the next issue is... Uh, we get to see the universe dying. We get a bunch of different versions of death as she experiences the death of the universe. And...
1: and then we find out why they were assembled on the ship. There's a really weird version of death with the triangle head. Yeah. Very strange.
0: I mean, it's just like an she's watching an alien world die, so she's in the... The alien aspect of herself. And then, why does Delirium show up? There's a whole sequence where Delirium is there. That looks great, but I don't remember what... Does she just show up? What is her thing?
1: I thought she just showed up because there's a lot of, like, chaos and confusion at the end of the world.
0: Yeah, he says there's one member of our family that we still have to talk to. And... Oh, this is she shows up and reveals, like, hey, all the stars are mad. And he's, like, hey, the world's ending. Is there anything that you can do?
1: Well, I think it sort of shadows their journey when they go to look for destruction in the main series. But instead of looking for destruction, it's already there, and it's just mm-hmm. destroying things.
0: Oh, and she gives him a call-out where she's like, you don't... Um, actually care the universe is ending. You just care that it's your fault. Which is, like, a pr- pretty harsh, but probably accurate. And, like, basically sets up his whole character arc that he experiences in the main series.
1: Yeah, and I think he quickly flips, too. This is another thing. He When he's talking to the different characters, he's quickly flipping into different manifestations. Like, when he goes back to talk to Hoop, her spirit, he is the... Like- the dream that she encountered. Yeah, his bolo tie dream. Yeah, and then you know, he he's the tra- when he's talking to delirium, he's a traditional Morpheus in his long robe with his bare chest and then, you know, he's back to being the captain of the ship and so it's very so he's kind of like he himself is like frenetically changing his manifestations. As he's trying to deal with this end of the world.
0: And so what what we find out here is they're going to do the thing from Dream of a Thousand Cats. But the catch is Dream can't tell that secret to a living, awake person. That's why he had to tell it to the cat in the dream. But he can tell it to Hope because she's dead. And then she can tell the rest of the inhabitants of the ship what they have to do. Which is to redream the universe, but redream a version of it where he Morpheus killed the the vortex when he needed to.
1: I think it's interesting that it starts with a yawn. So she yeah, she starts a yawn, and then everyone starts to yawn, and then they immediately start to dream that dream.
0: Yeah, and they're like, "How can we do this? I don't know how to just dream a thing that I want to dream." And she's like, "You just have to believe that you're going to dream it and do it, and then." We get this sequence where Daniel has the seculum and he sends it back in time to time, who sends it forward in time to Morpheus, implying that it's like stuck forever in this cycle where Dream borrows it from his dad, it gets returned by himself in the future, and then his dad lends it back to him.
1: The whole thing is told in this, there's five circle panels and they're going along and you can see if you look at the whole page that it's actually the sacculum where it has the same markings and they're sort of throwing it to each other and then by the time it gets to the bottom it's just the sigil and it says time flies
0: yeah and then we get this crazy sequence where dream is like stretched thin to the breaking point along reality as he tries to guide this dream and this ship through the dreaming to recreate the world and this is what weakens him so much that he gets to be put in the uh in the bottle this is where we get like the bit that like big fold-out sequence i was talking about where it's like this huge crazy chaotic starburst and there's this like ekg meter right zigzag that goes across it to this these like circular radial panels that are the end of it where he shows up naked and weakened before glory who's like good job kid you done saved the world Here's the consequences. No one's going to remember but you and your friend Hope has been erased from existence.
1: (laughs) Which I think if you think about this happens before he gets captured by Burgess, this shows you, it could show you the reason why he abandons humanity. Well, because he's been through this terribly traumatic, Sequence where he tried to help someone, he tried to help the vortex and it caused this chaos. And then he befriended this girl, and then the consequences of that was that he ended up having to destroy her to save yeah. humanity. And then
0: Dream is the only one that's going to remember Hope, but then she gets like this sets up the hell thing, right? Right when he has the contest with Cornanzan in hell and he defeats him with Hope, right. Is like his tribute to his friend that he had to erase from existence in order to save the universe.
1: And so then you think that the volume ends with the circle panel, the 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 circle with the sigils all around it that Burgess uses to capture him.
0: Yeah, that's and, the big reveal: is these circle panels are actually reflections of the frequency of Burgess's ritual, pulling out of the universe and tugging at Dream. And then, as he tries to travel back home, he can't. He's too weak to resist the pull, and he gets stuck in the bottle.
1: But I think we also forgot to mention that when they all start to dream, he Morpheus takes out his bag of dust and he starts sprinkling it all over the place, which is how he ends up in the circle with all of his helm parts.
0: Yeah, he needs. Yeah, we see why he he had all of them with him. When throughout the rest of the series, you never really see him with all three of them together until, except for like when he goes to hell to have the fight and then it turns out there's no fight to be had because nobody's in hell.
1: This is why this panel was, this is why I thought, I knew it was like the beginning of Mm -hmm. Salmon when you realize that Salmon is trapped in the circle. But I think the reason why I thought it was not exactly the same panel is because when you look at the full page, it obviously looks like either an eyeball or like, around it the gray flames that are around there are almost like a like a, a sun like a flare of a sun which i don't think is in the first
0: no i think it's the original panel and then a, a new border all around it that williams did that's this like smoky black and white painting right
1: and i think that sort of when you see the first volume and you see the small circle you realize that it's a trap. But when you see this one as the prequel, you realize you, the cosmic scope of him being trapped.
0: And it's almost like there's a hole in the last page of this comic. Right. The dream falls through into Sandman issue one.
1: Exactly. And then you think it's over. And then you're like, okay. And then there's an epilogue, which I think is the greatest part. Is my favorite part of this.
0: Yeah, so the epilogue is, we the we fully revealed that the, we didn't mention it when it was first suggested in the, um, issue in the, in the story itself. But the cat is not an aspect of Dream. It's somebody pretending to be an aspect of Dream. It's got a big heart on its head. It's pretty obvious. Like, oh, that's Desire. And then this epilogue fully reveals that the cat was Desire. And it's a whole conversation um, that does, they're having with Despair. And throughout the conversation, they slowly both slowly forget what they're even talking about. But Desire is basically like, Dream's a big, dumb narcissist, and he couldn't possibly think that anyone else would want to save the universe, except for me. But I'm the force that holds the universe together, because, like, I'm... It's such a cool idea that desire is, like, the embodiment of attraction, which includes, like, the nuclear attraction between molecules that holds time and space together.
1: I also think it's interesting that she morphs from the physical shape of the feline cat to a human shape that has cat-like...
0: Well, she's literally wearing a cat-ear headband. She's in a sexy cat Halloween costume. Yes. Uh, and they have this really tender moment together, her and Despair. I, yeah, this sequence is really good because it adds a lot to Desire's character to make them less of just a straight-up villain. I think it adds a lot to... It gives us... A, I always like when they when he highlights her relationship with Despair. Because there are Otherwise, such like unsympathetic characters.
1: Yeah, and, and it also sort of plants that very important plot point in the main series about this sort of challenge that desire and despair have, where desire claims that she's going to be able to force dream to hurt one of his own.
0: Yeah, so the plan that despair, desire comes up with here is they realize oh, what Dream has learned from this whole sequence is he needs to kill a vortex immediately. And I want to get him to kill his own blood, so I need to figure out a way to make a vortex that is his own blood. And then that plan is the, comes to fruition in the doll's house.
1: I also think it's interesting because there's really not a lot about despair. And then when you see her in the main series, it's kind of like... Sad? But at this, like, this relationship that's projected with her sister, Mm -hmm. and even in one of the panels where they're, like, together, and they're, like, close to each other, they actually look the same. Yeah. And then you're kind of like, okay, like, it, because there's Morpheus and his relationship with death, and then there's delirium and her relationship with destruction, and then, so then you realize that there's another sibling bond between despair and desire,
0: which further highlights how destiny is the saddest character in the series
1: exactly exactly
0: but he's the only one that hangs out with her dad so i guess i don't know there's something there uh yeah and that's
1: the that's the end i think it i mean i really liked
0: it yeah me too i think this is this means a lot i think considering some of the other stories and artists we've had working on this on the sandman comics i think this is the best looking sandman story
1: I think so, too. And I really like all of these sort of... It's a much more sophisticated way to depict Morpheus. He, he seems less childlike than, than, you know, in the series. Because in the series, he's very emotional and he's very sort of...
0: He's well, going through
1: this, like, journey of, like, expansion and, you know... I
0: think he's almost more childlike here than he is in the other ones. This is him, like... What this story is, is Morpheus is a kid who made a mess and he's desperately trying to clean it up before anyone realizes it.
1: Yeah, and I think it sort of shows you that he tends to make rash decisions that he doesn't think about. Mm -hmm. I mean, he makes it with the vortex, he makes it with hope, he makes it with the decision, you know, going to see his parents. There's all these things that he does that he really you know it's like he's not really trying to solve the problem just sort of bumbling along until the problem gets solved Wait, he's,
0: it's like i think that's the the key to the sequence with him and mother Night is she is offering him what he really wants and him realizing that he shouldn't want that because what he's trying to do throughout the series you're right isn't solve the problem it's to eliminate the consequences of his poor decision and then the just realization he has at the end is that he has to solve the problem and deal with the consequences
1: Yeah, but I mean, the story is a very simple story. Mm -hmm. And I think what makes it work, because if it was just the novel, it wouldn't be rich enough to be a novel. But I think what really makes the story is the visuals. Yeah. I mean, the artwork is like next level. I mean, it's just, it's gorgeous.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, It's like, like I said, so like visually dense and so inventive with all the panels. It's, It's really very impressive.
1: I also thought that it was like, it was a nice sort of sequel to the series. It complemented it, it furthered it, and it kind of had enough um, special Easter eggs, kind of special elements that would make like the fans of the series really like it. Mm-hmm. So I felt like it, and it didn't feel like it was pandering, like it wasn't put out to make money or to a reboot or whatever. It was just, it was thoughtfully done. It was well written. It was beautifully designed. I felt like it was a good compliment to the series because a lot of times when things come out like sequels or reboots or different you know versions of something it's not always in the same heart of the original series
0: yeah yeah this definitely felt like a sandman story
1: i also realized just like i wasn't really aware of like how important the game of you and the doll's house were to the series Mm -hmm. i mean they're like the like they're the most important issues in that series i think it really shows like the way that there's lots of references to those two
0: Mm -hmm. yeah this does like i think i said um shit actually i can't remember what i at some point i made a statement where i was like oh the best thing that this does but i don't remember now but i think one of the good things that this does is Oh, yeah, I said that it fixes the stakes of the doll's house. Yeah. Which is true. I also think it does a nice job through him telling that story and connecting the um, creation of the scary to this story and to other things. Like, I think this does a lot to make what happens at the end of Game of You feel a little bit more poignant because it's like his story about him with Eleonora reflects, like, the stuff that happens with him in Thessaly. And, all, and him and, you know, all these other characters. It's like, it almost reframes A Game of You. Like, him showing up at the end to destroy the scary in A Game of You as him, like, excising the last ghost of his shitty relationships.
1: Right, definitely. What did you think of the Kylie ones in this?
0: Well uh, I, I dug them in it. I, I like that they weren't, like, antagonistic. that this wasn't trying really hard to, like remind us that they're going to be the ones that killed dream i mean i like that there was like the little subtle reference of them being like you know this path leads to your death because we know that sandman ultimately becomes the story of the death of this version of dream but i i, I almost felt like they were maybe a little superfluous
1: yeah and i think they were sort of because they were so important to the main series there had to be some sort of nod hmm I thought it was interesting. I liked how you learned how the dream castle was created. And I liked how you learned how his helm was crafted. Even though, like, his helm sort of changes throughout the series. And sometimes it's less skull-like and more sort of mechanical. To me, it always looked, in my mind, like a World War One like, gas mask. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting because a lot of it takes place in this instance in 1915, which would be, like, right, you know.
0: I also think Williams does a good job of reverse engineering the god to look like a being whose skull would be that helmet. Yes. Without it just having the helmet on its head. Like it like he puts the skin over it in a really convincing way. Which uh, it was a nice little design choice. Uh, yeah, no. I, yeah, I really dug this. Do, no, this probably isn't true. But do you think that we're supposed to take that the dream not killing that vortex and the star going mad is what changed delight into delirium
1: i think that could be it i also i thought that maybe like that whole instance you were supposed to be like why did he make that decision again but we know why he makes the same decision again later on well he's
0: deliberately trying to not make that decision has to be talked into making it but yeah i think yeah, I, 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 like I said, yeah, this is all really good. I, clearly a lot of thought was put into how this was going to line up with Dream's characterization in the rest of the series. And I think it all fits together really well. Yeah. Okay, I think we're done. Do you have anything else to say about this?
1: Um, I don't think so. Do you want to talk about what we're doing next?
0: Well, yeah, so this Coffee is our... wise This is our last... Um, our last uh, episode. That's the word I was looking for. This is our last episode for November. And so December, we're going to have a little bit of a 2 for 1 Santa Claus special.
1: <laughs> Holiday extravaganza. <laughs> well, we're already having like sort of like a Neil November. Yeah, Neil November. <laughs> <laughs> November.
0: And we're going to have a uh, Claus December.
1: <laughs> yeah, well that's good. Had <laughs> that. Copyright uh, symbol right after that.
0: So the next issue, I mean the next <laughs> It's the same thing, man we all this podcast we cannot separate the words episode issue and chapter. Everything is one of those. <laughs> it's
1: either it's some type of book.
0: next episode we're going to be reading the life and Adventures of Santa Claus by L. Frank Baum and then for the comic for December, we are going to read Klaus or Claus by written by Grant Morrison with art by Dan Mora and then uh after that i I mean we haven't quite figured out what our next big series of comics are if we're going to keep doing more one shots but we'll keep you posted maybe i'll write up a schedule and post it online or something but well i guess that's it spoiler stay tuned sweet dreams
1: bye everyone